0: Chronicles Revisited Podcast, Episode 11, Where Did All the Light Go? Broderbund Experiments with Science Toolkit. Welcome to the Chronicles Revisited Podcast. I'm S.M. Oliva. I write the blog Computer Chronicles Revisited, which reviews the people, products, and companies featured on the PBS series that aired between 1983 and 2002. In this podcast, I go in-depth on stories that I've previously featured on the blog. For this episode, I'm looking at Science Toolkit, an interesting product released in 1985 by Broderbund, a company best known for software titles like The Print Shop and Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Science Toolkit represented a phase of Broderbund's history when the company looked to expand its offerings in the educational software market, particularly for the Apple II. Before delving into Science Toolkit, however, let's set the stage for where Broderbund was as a company in 1985. Broderbund started out as a family business. The co-founders, Douglas and Gary Carlston, were brothers. Born and raised in Iowa, both brothers graduated from Harvard in the early 1970s. Doug Carlston did some computer programming during his undergraduate days, but he did not go into the field initially. Instead, he took a job editing and then writing foreign language books for American Express. Eventually, Doug returned to Harvard, where he earned a law degree while spending his summers helping to build houses in Maine. Upon graduating from law school in 1975, Carlston moved to Chicago and spent the next three years working for a large law firm. Unhappy with that lifestyle, he quit and returned to Maine, where he set up his own law practice. In 1978, Doug purchased a Tandy TRS-80, one of the first widely available microcomputers. Ostensibly to help his law practice, Carlston instead used the machine to develop a series of simple computer games, which he called the Galactic Saga. He managed to get his games carried in some mail-order software catalogs, thus taking the first step towards moving into the still-nascent computer software industry. The next step came in early 1980 when Doug decided he'd had enough of the law and moved cross-country to live with Gary, who was then based in Eugene, Oregon. Gary Carlston had no background in either business or software. His main claim to fame had been coaching a women's basketball team in Sweden. After relocating to Oregon, he worked for a time as a field director for the March of Dimes, a nonprofit charity. And as Gary would later recall, when he couldn't make his half of the rent one month, Doug suggested he try and sell copies of the Galactic Saga games. Gary did just that. On the morning of February the 20th, 1980, he called a computer store owner in Washington, D.C., and managed to sell $300 worth of games. And thus, Broderbund Software was born. The Carlstons followed up that initial $300 sale by attending the West Coast Computer Fair in San Francisco, which was then run by Jim Warren, the original host of The Computer Chronicles, when it was a local show based at KCSM in San Mateo. The brothers convinced Warren to give them a micro-booth at the show for just $200. At the time, Broderbund had just four products, the three Galactic Saga games that Doug wrote for the TRS-80, and a fourth game, Tank Command, which was written by a third brother, Don Carlston, a full-time professor back in Iowa. Don originally created Tank Command on the multi-user Plato system, but subsequently ported it to the Apple II. So Doug and Gary bought an Apple II to demonstrate the program at the fair. It was then Doug Carlston later wrote in his account of early Broderbund history that he realized the Apple II was, quote, an instant marketplace for new software in ways that we felt the TRS-80 was not, unquote. So he converted his own games to the Apple II. More importantly, Broderbund acquired the rights to distribute a number of Japanese games for the Apple II, which helped to establish the fledgling company as a legitimate software publisher. Yet another Carlston sibling, Kathy, joined the company in 1981 to oversee marketing. That same year, under pressure from their Japanese partners, the Carlstons relocated Broderbund from Oregon to San Rafael, a city in California's Marin County. Once established in Silicon Valley, Broderbund quickly grew into one of the top 10 consumer software companies in the United States. Longtime Computer Chronicles contributor Tim Baharan told the Oakland Tribune in August 1985, "Broderbund is one of the long-term players in this industry. They've moved into the number one position in the home entertainment and personal productivity market on the strength of consistently excellent products." And many of those excellent products were not games. Some of Broderbund's most successful titles from this period included Fantavision, an animation program, and Bank Street Writer, a word processor both of which were developed for the Apple II. And then there was the company's flagship title, The Print Shop, a simple desktop publishing program, again originally developed for the Apple II. That's not to say Broderbund released exclusively on the Apple. Like all major software companies of the time, Broderbund had to release their programs on a number of platforms to remain competitive, including the Commodore 64, the Atari 8-bit line, and of course the IBM Personal Computer and its compatibles. But Broderbund's lead platform for new projects was usually the Apple II. By 1985, the Apple was a mature platform. The original machine debuted at Jim Warren's first computer fair back in 1977, and the built-in expansion capabilities made it well-suited to a number of different computing tasks. Had Broderbund decided to remain primarily a games company, it might have pivoted to the Commodore 64, which cost substantially less than the Apple II and had a far larger install base in the United States. But the Carlstons weren't exactly fans of Commodore or its management. Gary Carlston famously told a software conference in 1984, If you build a business plan on Commodore, I suggest you build one on cocaine instead. The risks and rewards are the same, but I hear the people are a lot nicer. So when Broderbund set up shop at the January 1985 Consumer Electronics Show, its booth focused on three new products that would launch on the Apple II as part of the company's new Exploration series. The first, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego?, was a geography-themed adventure game where players had to follow clues and track down members of a gang of thieves led by a mysterious woman in a fedora and trench coat. The second, Welcome Aboard, A Muppet Cruise to Computer Literacy?, featured Kermit the Frog and his pals teaching children how to perform basic computing tasks like word processing, electronic mail, and database management. And then there was Science Toolkit, which for the first time in Broderbund's history combined software with a hardware peripheral. Science Toolkit was essentially marketed as a home science lab. The hardware consisted of an analog-to-digital converter that plugged into the Apple II's joystick port. The converter had four input ports. The user connected probes to one of the ports. These probes performed a specific type of measurement, which was then interpreted by the included software. The 129-page manual detailed 27 sample experiments to perform, and the user was encouraged to create their own experiments as well. Broderbund marketed the initial release of Science Toolkit as the master module, which included probes to measure light and temperature, respectively. Broderbund would later sell additional modules as expansion packs, each including new probes, software, and sample experiments. Selling such additions was not an entirely new concept for Broderbund, as it had already had seen great success marketing expansion clipart discs for the print shop. The sample experiments were designed so they could be performed either at home or in a classroom setting. For example, one of the master module experiments was called Where Did All the Light Go?, This used the included light probe, known as a photocell, which also came with a ready-to-assemble cardboard stand and a piece of paper that served as a light guard. The user connected the photocell to the Apple II via the converter. Next, they propped the photocell up on the stand and pointed it towards a light source. The manual recommended using a 10-watt light bulb. The software included a light meter that recorded light intensities between 0 and 500-foot candles. The software could also, at the user's discretion, make an audible noise to indicate when the light intensity rose or fell. After taking an initial reading in the software, the manual instructed the user to move the light source closer towards the photocell until, until it recorded the maximum possible reading of 500-foot candles. The user would then use a physical tape measure to determine the distance between the photocell and the light bulb. Next. The user moved the light source twice that distance away and had the light reader record a new intensity measurement. This was repeated several times until there were at least five measurements. The goal was for the user to prove that the amount of light striking a surface decreased by the square of the distance to that light source. If this doesn't sound like the most entertaining use of an Apple IIe in 1985, keep in mind that most educational software during this period consisted of rote instructional drills. Broderbund's aim with the entire exploration series was to, in the words of Kathy Carlston, create software that could stand on its own as entertainment. Of course, today the only one of the three explorations programs that most people remember is Carmen Sandiego. It spurred a number of software sequels, such as Where in the North Dakota is Carmen San Diego, as well as multiple television shows, including a recent animated series for Netflix. As for the Muppet Cruise to Computer Literacy, despite the Jim Henson license, the program was apparently a commercial failure and quickly forgotten. Science Toolkit occupied a middle ground. This is not a program that's widely remembered today, yet it was considered quite successful at the time. It also received the most favorable press coverage upon release. In fact, it was featured at least twice on Computer Chronicles. The first appearance came in a December 1985 episode. Each year starting in 1985, Chronicles produced a Consumer Buyer's Guide episode, where the program's hosts and regular contributors held a roundtable discussion to recommend computer-themed holiday gifts. Stuart Chaffey himself demonstrated and praised Science Toolkit during one of these segments.
1: Now, Stuart, you have something also. I I sure do. This this goes back to kids, I think. And this is one of the cleverest uses of a computer I've ever seen. If you have an Apple II at home and if you have a kid, this is great. It turns your computer into a kind of a science chemistry lab. What you do is go into the joystick port with this little thing. You've got a thermistor that measures temperature over here, a photoelectric cell that measures uh, light, and you've got all kinds of different electronic meters now. For instance, I can pick thermometer. Go into the thermometer mode tell it to start, measuring temperature, and here it is, and it's telling it's 90 degrees in the studio right (laughs) now, guys. That's really close. Okay, now I can get out of that, and let's see if I escape and get back to this main menu. We'll get to our light meter here, and I can show you. uh, We'll find out how many foot candles are going in the studio right now if I tell it to start. And there we go, 3.1 foot candles. There's our little light Mm -hmm. meter going over there. It also has a timer in here so you can, you know, do experiments and actually time them. Let's see, I've got to get back here to uh, go down to our timer and call up the timer. And you'll see this is pretty neat, too. You get a timer over here. You can start it. You have a digital readout. Your little timer keeps on oh, So you can clever. time your experiments. We can get mm-hmm. out of that. And finally, there's another terrific feature in here, which is this thing called strip chart. And if I go into strip chart, I can actually draw a graph of the results of what it is I'm measuring. Mm-hmm. So here we go. And we can see this is just a little typical thing. And if I hit go... There's it going along there, oh. <laughs> and I'm done doing anything right now, so whatever it is I'm measuring isn't changing. Anyhow, I think this is a terrific way That's to this. turn a computer Like the into chemistry a sci- kit, if right, exactly. we Got it. stain and <laughs> it can't blow off. Well, <laughs> right. it may blow up. Anyhow, <laughs> it's called Science Toolkit, and it's from Broderbund.
0: Shafey was far from the only media member impressed with Broderbund's work. Bob Schwabach, a longtime syndicated computer columnist, wrote in November 1985 that he had spent the past two years reviewing a number of experimental science programs, and Science Toolkit was the first one that he could honestly recommend to anyone. In particular, Schwabach noted that Broderbund had managed to create an analog-to-digital converter that fit into a $70 retail package. Other products with similar converters ran between $300 and $1,000 at the time. Given Science Toolkit's price point, Schwabach said, quote, the potential for schools and bright young people is enormous." Unquote. His only substantial criticism was that the temperature probe only covered a range between 10 and 140 degrees Fahrenheit, a restriction that he said was imposed by Broderbund's lawyers rather than the product's designers. Although, when Broderbund later released a revised master module, that limitation was removed. Broderbund released three expansion modules for Science Toolkit. The first module, Speed and Motion, came with a speedometer, a tachometer to measure rotational speeds, and a small car powered by a balloon. It also included an additional photocell, reportedly the result of feedback that Broderbund received from science teachers who had requested a second light meter. The next expansion module, Earthquake Lab, came with a build-it-yourself seismoscope and seismograph software. The final module, Body Lab, Featured a build it yourself spirometer, a device used to measure the volume of air expelled by a person's lungs. The additional software could also measure and display a user's heart rate. Paul Schindler reviewed the expansion modules during his regular random access segment, which aired following the 1987 Chronicles Buyer's Guide episode. We step up a notch and move over to the Apple computer with Science Toolkit's
1: Body Module, a $40 software package from Broderbund. I can't say enough good things about Broderbund in general and the Science Toolkit in particular. It's well-written software that's fun and educational. Now, there's lots of things you can do with the package, but we're just going to show three of them quickly. You can measure your heart rate, measure the volume of air in your lungs, and measure your
0: response time. Science Toolkit Body Lab is $40." Given the praise heaped on Broderbund for Science Toolkit, you might assume that the company had effectively invented a new kind of computer software product. Indeed, a 1987 Broderbund newsletter credited Doug Carlston with having the inspiration to create a hardware extension for the Apple to conduct real-world experiments rather than on-screen simulations. But that inspiration likely came from someone else. More precisely, it probably came from a former college professor, Dr. Robert Tinker. Tinker was a physicist by training. While enrolled in the doctoral program at Stanford in the 1960s, he was inspired by the civil rights movement to leave with his master's degree and take a teaching job at a historically black college in Alabama. Tinker later returned to his doctoral studies, this time at MIT, where he worked under Professor John G. King, a major proponent of reinventing science education at the high school level. One of King's ideas was to create a shoebox of sensors that students could use to measure almost everything. Of course, King proposed this in 1962, when computers were still confined to large mainframes and expensive minicomputers. In the early 1970s, Tinker started experimenting with mini computer based projects to teach students. When the Intel 808 microprocessor came onto the market, he quickly pivoted towards microcomputers. Tinker said it was a colleague, Greg Edwards, who first suggested to him using an analog to digital converter to connect a sensor to a microcomputer for use as a laboratory instrument to gather data. Tinker tested Edwards' idea using the KIM-1, a developmental microcomputer created in 1976 by Pennsylvania-based Moss Technology, as a showcase for its new 6502 microprocessor. Tinker connected an analog temperature probe to the KIM-1 and used it to conduct what he dubbed the cooling curve experiment. Basically, the probe measured the temperature of a sample of mothballs inside of a test tube. A second probe measured the temperature of the surrounding water to demonstrate that it was cooler and extracting heat from the test tube sample, even though the mothballs remained at a constant temperature. The cooling curve experiment was merely a proof of concept, but it sparked enough interest among physics teachers that Tinker and his team developed a number of additional experiments to run using their new KIM-1 expansion board. They programmed the experimental software onto a single ROM chip for ease of access. Tinker later said they sold several hundred KIM computers with these add-ons. Tinker would come to describe his work as microcomputer-based labs, or MBL. Later, this type of hardware-software combination would be known as probeware, a term coined by Dr. Marcia Lynn, a Stanford-trained psychologist who conducted an Apple computer-funded study in the mid-1980s, using Apple II computers to teach heat and temperature to middle school science students. The fact that Apple would fund such a study will come as no surprise to anyone who used a school computer lab in this time period. The Apple II was effectively the entire educational computer market in the 1980s. That was no accident. Back in 1978, Apple won a contract to supply 500 Apple II machines to the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, which was a big deal at a time when Apple only sold a few thousand computers every year. And in the early 1980s, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs led a concerted lobbying effort to alter federal and state tax laws to make it more financially palatable for the company to donate Apple IIs to public schools. The California legislature eventually approved an 18-month tax credit that led Apple to give one free 2e computer to each of the state's 9,250 public schools. According to computer journalist Ken Uston. If every school accepted that gift, Apple would see a tax credit windfall of about $4 million. Apple's gift would also prove important to the success of Broderbund's Science Toolkit. A 1986 paper presented by James Eckenrod and Saul Rockman noted the California Department of Education purchased and distributed a copy of Broderbund's probeware package to 1,457 public schools, covering every single public high school student in the state at the time. But what was the actual link between Robert Tinker's early Kim-1 add-on boards and Science Toolkit? Admittedly, this is inference and speculation on my part, but I think there are several clues that strongly suggest that Doug Carlston knew about Tinker's work and sought to build on it. To be clear, I'm not accusing Carlston of stealing or misappropriating any intellectual property. Tinker was an educator who openly promoted the dissemination and use of his ideas. My goal here is simply to try and explain a possible chain of influence on the Broderbund product. By the early 1980s, Tinker had moved his MBL research off of the Kim One and onto the Apple II. One reason for this was the Apple II had a game port that accepted analog panels. This was a design feature implemented by Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, who wanted to be able to play Breakout, a game he helped design for Atari on his new microcomputer, Tinker realized this port would also be ideal for taking inputs from a photocell. In the early 1980s, Tinker and his team at the Technical Education Research Center, or Turk, conducted a series of workshops for science teachers who wanted to learn how to use computers in their classrooms. One part of the workshop had the participants connect a photocell to the Apple II Paddle port and then write a simple basic program to record and graph the data. Later, Tinker and his team designed what they called a blue box to connect four inputs into the game port, which sounds an awful lot like the design used in the science toolkit analog-to-digital converter. Tinker's blue box even included both a photocell and a temperature probe. Unfortunately, Tinker later recalled that the Turk workshops were a financial failure. They did, however, spur the development of a series of commercial probeware packages published by HRM Software. Known as the Experiments in series, the first product came out sometime in late 1984 or early 1985 and was called Experiments in Physiology. This kit included Tinker's Blue Box probes and Apple II software to conduct classroom experiments measuring a subject's heart and breathing rate, features we'd later see on the Science Toolkit body module. It seems that even though HRM was first to market, it could not compete with Broderbund on price. Early news reports on the experiment's in-series priced each of the HRM modules between $150 and $250. Meanwhile, the Science Toolkit Master module sold for between $60 and $70, with each of the expansions retailing for about $40. So while Broderbund's product thrived and helped propel the company's already solid balance sheet, HRM software ended up in bankruptcy. Robert Tinker later observed that HRM had simply replicated his blue box designs without taking the time to re-engineer them for mass production. As a result, the units that HRM sold were less reliable and more expensive than they needed to be. Tinker's next foray into commercial probeware was one that hints at the most direct connection to Broderbund. In 1984, PBS broadcast a 13-episode educational series called The Voyage of the Mimi, This was one of the first attempts to create a multimedia project targeting students. The television portion showed a fictional account of children assisting graduate students performing whale research on a sailboat named the Mimi. In the show, the children used probeware designed by Tinker and the team at Turk to measure water temperature, light transmission, and whale sounds. The multimedia package also included a software component for teachers to use in their classrooms after students watched the program. One part of this package was actually demonstrated in a September 1986 Computer Chronicles episode. And there was also a probeware component, again designed by Tinker and Turk. This package focused on graphical on-screen displays, including a live thermometer and a general-purpose timer, both of which were featured in Science Toolkit. The most revealing clue, however, is that The Voyage of the Mimi was produced by the Street College of Education in New York City. You may recall that earlier I mentioned the name Bank Street when referencing Broderbund's Bank Street Writer, a word processing program that was one of the company's early hits. In fact, Bank Street Writer was developed by the Bank Street College, as were a number of early Broderbund home productivity titles. Doug Carlston was close with then-Bank Street president Dick Rupp, who also worked directly with Robert Tinker on Mimi. According to Tinker, there had been plans to spin off the probeware component of Mimi into a standalone commercial package that would have been called Bank Street Lab. But that project never materialized due to the sale of the company that owned the publishing rights to Mimi. And yet, roughly a year after Mimi debuted, Broderbund hit the stores with Science Toolkit, a package that seems to accomplish most, if not all, of the same objectives as the abandoned Bank Street project. Did Dick Rupp suggest to Doug Carlston that Broderbund take up the idea? Maybe. Once again, this is just speculation, but the timeline seems to make sense. In any event, Science Toolkit did well enough for Broderbund to release a 2.0 version, dubbed Science Toolkit Plus, in 1989. The two biggest upgrades involved the addition of a second temperature probe and a higher suggested retail price of $100. Existing Toolkit owners could purchase an upgrade for just $30. Broderbund also released an IBM PC version in 1988 that required an add-on board with a game control port. By the early 1990s, Broderbund was finally moving away from its Apple II roots. Science Toolkit never saw another upgrade. The family-owned Broderbund was also in the midst of change. Gary and Kathy Carlson both left the company. In 1991, Doug Carlson took Broderbund public on the stock exchange. And within a few years, the company fell victim to a hostile takeover bid and faded into history. While some of Broderbund's better known IP, such as PrintShop and Carmen San Diego, continue under new owners today, Science Toolkit never saw any attempt at a revival. That's not to say the concept of probeware went away. One of Robert Tinker's Turk Workshop students, a physics teacher named David Vernier, was inspired to start his own probeware company, Vernier Software. That company is still around today and is generally considered the leader in the field, selling a wide range of probes and software that work with modern computers. Sadly, Robert Tinker himself is no longer with us, having passed away in June 2017 at the age of 75. In a tribute, Dr. Gary Steger called Tinker the Thomas Edison of STEM and specifically pointed to Science Toolkit as a shining example of what Tinker sought to accomplish with Probeware. And that's all for this episode of the Chronicles Revisited podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode, there are links in the show notes. You can also visit my website, Computer Chronicles Revisited, at That's smoliva.blog. That's S-M-O-L-I-V-A blog, which contains full episode recaps and analysis. My special thanks to Kate Willart, video game historian and Broderbund expert, for her advice and assistance in preparing this episode. In the next episode, I'll look at MicroPro International, the company behind WordStar, the early leader in PC word processing software before it was quickly displaced by WordPerfect. Talk to you then.